you should have in front of you one of those uh, handouts, which has on it Psalm 22. Uh, it's uh, hopefully it will be recognisably similar to the version in your Bibles. Um, I've translated it so as to bring out um, a few details that are not so obvious uh, in English translations, and the result of that is it's somewhat lumpy at points. That's kind of the compromise you make when you try and go a bit more word for word, which is why our English Bibles don't tend to do it. But I'm going to read that in a moment. But first I'll pray, and then I want to tell you a story, then we'll read this and get into it. Let me lead us in prayer as we have this um, time uh, with the Word of God in front of us. Let's pray together. Merciful God and Father, we're thankful to you for one another, for this time of fellowship and a joyful celebration of your goodness to us, uh, a chance to sing together uh, later this evening, and at this time a chance to have your word open in front of us. And here we have this remarkable psalm, which speaks with such vividness and clarity about Christ and his death for us, but also touches on many other aspects of Christian life and experience, and indeed about the whole history of the world is wrapped up in this psalm. And so we ask that this day you would help us to not plummet depths, that would be a foolish ambition, but to scratch a little deeper beneath the surface and to see what your word has to say to us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Before I read this psalm, I want to tell you a story briefly about its impact. Uh, I think I've told some of my theological students this once or twice, so please forgive me if you've heard it before. A friend of mine who is now a pastor in South Africa called Michelle, actually that's what his birth name is, Everyone calls him Rat because he married a lady called Michelle. So he had to find another name. And so Rat was the name that he settled on because he liked surfing. And once he came out of the surf, covering his hair everywhere, and somebody said, you look like a drowned rat. And so Rat stuck. So Rat uh, was an apprentice, like a pastoral intern with me back at the church I served at in Wimbledon in southwest London in 2000. And the... Central verses in this psalm, verses 16 to 18, were instrumental in his conversion. He describes, I don't know that it was the moment that he professed faith in Christ, but a friend of his was bringing him to church. And the pastor, Richard Cokin, one of the finest preachers I've ever had the privilege of sitting under and seeking to learn from, said at one point in the sermon, it was an evangelistic sermon around about Easter, and he said, I'm going to read to you an account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And then he read verses 16 to 18, and then he said, it may interest you to know that those words were written roughly 1,000 years before the events they described took place, which totally blew my friend Rat sideways. When he felt the visceral force of the prophetic character of scripture because one of the things that this psalm does which I'm saying this now so that you're ready for it is to speak about Christ and his suffering in particular and his death with such vividness and power and clarity and it's almost like it was written by the God who's the sovereign over all things that happen in the universe isn't it well there we are Um, You may know that this is quoted a number of times in the New Testament and alluded to many more times, but three out of four quotes and 14 out of the 20 allusions to this psalm come from the narratives of Jesus' final days and hours. 
So this really is a psalm, among other things, about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's because of that that it had uh, an impact on my friend. But it is a a psalm about a great deal more. And I want to share with you some of those things as well this evening. Let me read it. And then I'll just make some comments about it and try and finish in time for us to have a good long sing at the end of this evening. So Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, which is probably the musical setting. A psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but rest is not with me. But you, you are holy, seated upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by man and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They let go their mouths. They shake their heads. Roll upon the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you, you are the one who drew me from the womb. You made me trust you upon the breasts of my mother. Upon you was I cast from, my, from the womb, from the belly of the mother, my God, you have been. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no helper. Many bulls encompass me, strong ones of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me, a lion tearing and roaring. Like water I am poured out and divided at all my bones. My heart has become like wax, it is melted in the midst of my inner parts, dried up like an earthen vessel is my strength, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and to the dust of death you have placed me. For dogs encompass me, a congregation of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they, they stare and look at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast the lot. But you, Lord, do not be far off. My strength to my help come quickly. Deliver from the sword my soul, from the hand of the dog my only life. Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All seed of Jacob, glorify him. And sojourn in awe of him, all seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he has heard. From you is my praise in the great assembly. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the tribes of the nations shall worship before you. For to the Lord belongs the kingship and he is ruling among the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. And the one whose soul does not have life. A seed shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come, or go maybe, 
and declare his righteousness to a people being brought forth that he did it. So, Psalm 22. Let me first make some comments just about the shape of this psalm as a whole. You'll see that I've divided it into three sections. That's why I needed to turn your paper sideways and put it into three chunks. And those three chunks are distinguished both by their thematic content and also by an interesting sort of literary marker. I want to show you both those things. So the content, the first block on the left is this mystified and anguished cry to God who has apparently forsaken the poet, the psalmist, and that is completely at odds with everything that the psalmist thinks or thought he knows about what God is like. You've forsaken me, but you're holy, verse 3. You're the one our fathers trusted in. You trust, they trusted in you and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were rescued. So the implied question is, so what's with me being abandoned? Can you see? And that theme appears a number of times, and we'll look at that in a, in a second. The second major section, verses 12 to 21, describes in more detail the nature of the affliction to which the psalmist is exposed and on account of which he feels abandoned by God. And it's... Uh, the heading I've scribbled over it here is men are like beasts. Lions, bulls, dogs, and so on. Again, we'll come to that in a second. And then third, the third section, it's as though the psalm shifts gear and it starts looking optimistic. Um, the optimism is kicked off by the very end of verse 21. A, a plea for salvation, save me from the mouth of the lion then turns into an answered prayer from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. And so off we go in the optimistic direction of the third section where the psalmist says that he's going to declare the wonders that the Lord has done to all those around him, to his brothers, to the congregation, the assembly. He urges them to join in praising him. And it turns out, verses 24 to 26, that the Lord hasn't despised or uh, abhorred the affliction of his afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. He's heard, finally, He's heard his prayers. And then in verses 27 to the end, you have this vision of the growth of the kingdom of the Lord, whose kingdom it is, into the future. You notice that there's a shift in verses 29 to 31 to the future tense in English. It's a slightly different tense in Hebrew, but it has the same force. It's looking to the future. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. They will bow down. Um, they, a seed shall serve him and so on. So, you see the three sections. Now they're delineated by something else quite interesting, and it's not quite a chiasm, although it sort of is. I know, I couldn't, I couldn't force it anyway, but uh, I know you all want me to find chiasms everywhere now, and that's the problem, and so I, uh, I've just got to show you what's in the text. And it is kind of chiastic in the sense of A, B, C, C, B, A, but the way that it works is slightly odd. It's not really that there are sections that have a particular theme, section A, and the theme corresponds to 
the section at the end, A dash or A prime and B, B. It's not really like that. It's just that there are words scattered through, which are then repeated at the end of each subsection in the reverse order. And it seems that they serve both to highlight the main themes of those sections and also to mark off those sections and perhaps to highlight a couple of other subtleties. So, for example, and I've highlighted them in red and blue and green, um, my God in blue, far in red, trusted in green in verse 4. And there's another trusted there. My God, you're far away despite the fact that we've trusted you. You see how the, the resonance of those words works? And then they're repeated at the end, but sort of in reverse order. Trust, you made me trust you when I was a tiny baby. My God, you have been. Be not far. So you see how that works? And it's intriguing. When you see patterns like this and then you notice deviations from the pattern, you should always ask why the deviations from the pattern. Don't just think, oh, well, you know, it just, just is what it is. And the deviations from the pattern here are, you've got, my God, my God, my God, at the beginning. It all spills out. It comes first and second in the pattern. Notice that in blue. It's actually a slightly different way of saying God in Hebrew, but it's basically the same word. It's as though, and this takes us to the, the sense in which this is a personal lament, the intensity with which this psalm encourages us to cry out to God. Like, we, we, if we say, my God, it, if you say it really forcefully, really vigorously, it becomes almost like an expletive, doesn't it? And we, I don't want to say it like that. But... The way the psalmist says it, it's as though it's just shy of that. It's not with the force and intensity that would make it a, a way of swearing. My, like that. No, it's not an obscenity. It is just dial it back one notch and then say it three times. This is the prayer of somebody who is right at the end of his tether, right at the end of his rope, and it's here to teach us how to pray when we feel like that. One of the most basic and obvious points about the Psalms is they're here to teach us how to pray. The whole range of human experience and emotion and life in relationship with God is encapsulated in the Psalms. And there is a time when it becomes so intense that this is the way that we should speak to God. So this is what Jesus said from the cross. The, the, the moments of picking up the cross when it feels most heavy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? My God, again, I cry by day and so on and so forth. And you notice some of the words I put in, in square brackets, and that's because they're not in the Hebrew text. And Hebrew poetry does this. It misses words out that it would probably put in prose in Hebrew and we'd certainly have in English. But it, if, I, if I read it without the words in square brackets, it gives you a sense of the crisp, punctuated intensity with which the psalmist is teaching us to pray. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from saving me. Or verse 6, 
But I, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned man and despised people. Can you see that the, the, the syntax has become fractured? So intense is the experience that this psalmist is going through. That's actually what happens right in the, um, in the center in verse 16, where it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. The word translated, they have, they have pierced, is a very, very unusual form of the verb. Some people, some people think it means like a lion. <laughs> Other people think, no, no, it's an unusually pointed verb. It's like, okay, how can you have a word in Hebrew that could, you can't decide whether it's talking about being like a lion or you've been pierced? Well, the answer is if it's very, very irregular. You see, what's happened to the, the psalmist's experience has become so intense that he is, the, like I'm almost trying to show you now, the, the, the very words that I'm saying are becoming broken apart from each other. You notice something else in that first section as well, um, when it talks about the experience of bewilderment. Um, Hebrew and Greek, actually, both have a slightly different but similar ways of emphasizing the person you're talking about. It's called fronting. And what you do is you put a pronoun at the front of the sentence, and then the pronoun is, the pronoun is automatically repeated in the verb. And I've tried to render that in verses 3, 4, and 5, and then verse 6, and then verse 9. But you, you are holy. In you, our fathers trusted. To you they cried. But I, I am a worm and not a man. Can you see how that feels? You're emphasizing that the contrast between what my experience is and what I thought you were like, Lord, is so great that it's almost like if, if this carries on, I could believe you're not there because it looks like you've abandoned me. And that's the experience to which this psalm invites us and which it echoes actually and if there's never a time in your life where you feel so far from God and so lost and so helpless that you want to say that he feels like he's abandoned you I'm thrilled for you but there just might be and you just might need this psalm you might need words to pray to God when you're not even sure that he's there still or whether he ever was at all I was listening to an interview just this morning with a very articulate man who is um, an atheist who was raised in a Jewish context. Um, so, you know, first three quarters of the Bible minus Jesus. He, um, he was being told as a teenager the Exodus story and he just rebelled against the idea that a God could be there like that. And since his mid-teens, early teens really, he's... He's refused to believe in the God of the Bible. The God that our Jewish friends, if you have Jewish friends, they, who believe in is not the God of the Bible. Of course, he's not triune, but we share some scriptures with Jewish people. So to a certain extent, our, the reading of narratives overlaps with theirs. And he'd read this narrative and had a bunch of experiences in his life, and he just couldn't reconcile what he'd experienced with the idea that God is there. And there may be times like that for you, where... Everything you thought you knew about God 
is contradicted by what it seems to you that he's exposing you to. And you feel abandoned. And he's not abandoned you. But if I don't tell you this now, I don't want to be doing uh, open heart surgery on the spiritual freeway because it's a little late then. (laughs) The, The time for giving people Psalm 22 to pray is before the emergency. And so these are some words to pray. Um, Notice how the psalmist plunders the dictionary in verses 6 and 7 as he's describing the intensity of the mockery and contempt that he experiences from other people. Scorned by man, despised by the people, all who see me mock me, they let go their mouths, they shake their heads. He's, He's piling up the ways of describing the contempt that he's experiencing from other people. And it's intriguing to me that um, this is also in the centre of the description of the psalmist's experience in verses 12 through 21. Um, Dogs encompass me, a congregation of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. He's surrounded by people who've become beast-like. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong ones of Bashan surround me. These are not actual bulls. These are people. The way you know they're people is because they're part of a congregation Verse 16, a congregation of evildoers. And so it makes me wonder, actually, as we think of Jesus quoting these words towards the end, well, right at the end of his life. It says something about the nature of his suffering, doesn't it? Because we, if we're asked to pin down what was it that Jesus suffered, obviously there's the physical pain of crucifixion, that um, the Phoenicians invented persecution. Um, persecution, persecution. The Phoenicians invented crucifixion, The Romans perfected it into the dark art of torture that it became by the first century. Uh, And Jesus died, therefore, in excruciating pain. We also aren't to neglect the abandonment that he experienced, felt from his father, and genuinely that feeling was a description of the reality of his human experience. But it's intriguing to me that there's another relational level. The hostility that he felt from other people. Um, And I wonder if we sometimes overlook that until it happens. I wonder if there's a sense in which um, contempt and being scorned and being despised and being mocked by people is somehow more painful than physical pain. I don't know. Honestly, I've not had to experience as much of either as this man, David or Jesus. But for those who have, I don't know, maybe physical pain is not as bad sometimes in some ways as being scorned and mocked. Just back on the left-hand side of the page, there's an interesting little side note here. Um... I want to read verses 9 to 11 and, and um, say a word or two about this. Uh, yet you, you are the one who, you see, you, you again. You are the one who drew me from the womb. You made me trust you upon the breasts of my mother. Upon you was I cast from the womb, from the belly of my mother. My God, you have been. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no helper. Um, some of our uh, Baptist friends 
sometimes ask questions about our curious practice of taking small babies who are too young to profess faith in Christ and pouring water on their heads in the name of the triune God. Uh, as we've seen quite a lot in recent weeks, we've had the privilege of baptizing a bunch of babies. And uh, there are a whole bunch of questions that sometimes get asked about that. Um, one of the questions that I've been asked by my Baptist friends, and I have a lot of Baptist friends, some of my best friends are Baptists, uh, is, well, how, how could you contemplate baptizing someone who doesn't believe? And I want to say, whoa, hold on just a second. I'm very happy to acknowledge that a child cannot profess faith with words. That's not the same as saying that they can't believe. And they're like, what? And I want to say, Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Because here David reflects on his experience of pre-birth and immediately post-birth infancy. And he describes himself as one who trusted. Verse 9. You made me trust you. The the word there is the same word that's used in verse 4. Our fathers trusted. Batach is the Hebrew word. And I trusted when I was being breastfed. And of course, you recognize um, the illusion in verse 10. Upon you was I cast from the womb and from the belly of my mother. My God, you have been. You have been my God is an allusion to Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, where God promises, I will be their God to the offspring of Abraham. Not to Abraham alone. I will be their God. Genesis 17, verse 8. So one of the things I want to say to my um, dear Baptist friends is absolutely our children do not profess faith in Christ until they're a little older. But we are not to deny that it's possible for children to have a kind of faith to believe in a way that's appropriate for a childlike constitution. Um, and certainly the, the presumption of covenant children like David, even in such darkness as this, is that they do believe. We have a doctrine of not presumptuous, but presumptive infant faith in covenant families. So I've never baptized an unbeliever, even though I've baptized many children. Just a couple of thoughts about um, the middle section. I've already said a word or two about this. So we've gone far, my God, and trusted, and then back in reverse order. In, In the middle section, it goes bulls, lion, dogs, dog, lion, where are the bulls? Well, no bulls. And again, the temptation is to overlook this glitch in the structure and think, oh, maybe the psalmist was being careless or maybe it's of no consequence. Nope. Never careless, never inconsequential. What's the difference between bulls and wild oxen? Well, wild oxen are wild, not domesticated. And there's more than one of them. Bulls, wild oxen. You've got plural bulls in verse 12, but you've got plural wild animals in verse 21. So you see what's happening. The, the, the structure as it's framed here is, is calling attention to the intensification of the psalmist's experience. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. There it goes. But it goes there right at the moment where the psalmist confesses that you have answered me. Have you notice that? 
It's just got worse, and you have answered me. And that takes us to this transition to the final um, portion of the psalm. It's very intriguing. Um, when you read the gospel narratives of Jesus' death and, and you read on his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think he's saying? Obviously he's saying that my experience in some sense corresponds to Psalm 22 verse 1. Otherwise, why would he quote it? But is that all he's saying? And the answer is, of course not. It's, it has increasingly been rediscovered by biblical scholars what was always evident to the little old lady or the elderly gentleman in the church that you grew up in, that when um, a New Testament author quotes from an Old Testament text, they're not just pulling that text out of context and sort of slapping it on their experience. They're trying to draw attention to the whole context from which that text came. Richard Hayes is one scholar who's done great work basically catching up with what your grandmother would have told you. (laughs) That when Jesus quotes Psalm 21 verse 1, he's placing himself there on the trajectory that ends in Psalm 22 verses 22 to 31, which is a climactic victory. That's how biblical illusions work. You you will have discerned this from listening to Pastor Neil and um, myself and Pastor Shaw. Um, We notice and we're privileged to share with you the ways in which the New Testament authors call on whole swathes of biblical material just by a word or two here and there. That's how biblical illusions work. And so what happens in the third section is, well, what are the three words? Tell, seed, eat. Well, there we are. I'll tell. I'll I'll declare what the Lord has done. The seed, the offspring of Jacob, the seed of Israel, the children will join the people of God. Another echo again of the theme alluded to earlier in Genesis 17, that God's promises are not just to us, but to us and to our children. And what will we do as those who have been so called? Tell, seed, seed, eat. No one expected that, did you? (laughs) Well, of course you did. What's the climax of fellowship? The Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper. You, You meet a nice young lady and you sort of, you know... You go and um, you, you pluck up the courage to go and talk to her father. And, and what you're really hoping is that he says, yeah, of course you could take my daughter out for dinner at some point in the future. Because <laughs> dinner is not just like, I thought you might be hungry. I thought you might want to, you know. No, it's something more than that, isn't it? It's, it's what we had now. Like, you didn't just come here to satisfy your hunger, right? You could have eaten, not food as good as this, but you could have eaten at home. But you came together. As an expression of our fellowship in Christ and of our desire to build that relationship. And you were here last week and a week before and a week before that and somehow you keep coming back. And ditto on the Lord's Day. We, we're here and then you're going to come back on Sunday and then you're going to come back the following Sunday because we just want to keep coming back and eating and feasting with one another and with the Lord because that's the climax of our fellowship together. And then what happens is that these who have been afflicted are not abandoned. These who have felt despised are not hidden 
from God forever. That wonderful section in verses 24 to 26, which I'm not going to read again because it'll... I'll read a little bit. He's not despised and he's not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he's heard. And that's a wonderful affirmation of, this is what the Lord promises. Pray verses one to four when you feel abandoned and lie down and rest and sleep and wake again the next day and do that for a thousand days if you need to in expectation of the promise that is implicit in this psalm that he will hear the prayers of the afflicted he will answer when you call upon him and the answer is verses 27 to 31 you thought this was all about us and our afflictions which it is Or maybe you thought it was all about us and all about Jesus and his afflictions, which it is. But it's also about the history of the cosmos. Because in verse 1, we hear from David and on the lips of Jesus an echo of what Adam must have felt at times. Forsaken, abandoned, cast out. For altogether different reasons than Jesus, but a long way away from the Lord. You've got Genesis 3 echoing in Psalm 22, verse 1. And what's the end of the story of the Bible? Well, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the tribes of the nations shall worship before you, for to the Lord belongs the kingship. Again, belongs is just supplied to make sense of it. It's literally, to the Lord, the kingship. I love that. And he is ruling among the nations. It's a participle. He's ruling now among the nations. It doesn't say he's ruling the nations, actually. Because he's not actually, you know, we're in the middle of history. So we're waiting for his rule to be truly manifested in our nation's life, correct? But he's still ruling among us, guiding history towards that goal. All the prosperous, it's literally all the fat of the earth. I couldn't believe, couldn't pull myself to write that. So prosperous is what it means. All the ones who've, you know, I don't know, well-fed in the ancient world, that meant you were wealthy because most people were extremely thin because they're hungry most of the time. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. And the one whose soul does not have life, a seed shall serve him. It shall be told, literally of, but probably about the Lord to the coming generation. It's an awkward phrase. The idea, though, is that the next generation is going to be here. The next generation is going to hear we're going to pass on the news. They're the ones we're going to tell it to. You're going to teach your children. Don't make the mistake of Judges chapter 2 and not tell the kids. We're going to tell the next generation. They shall come, or probably I think they shall go. Same verb in Hebrew. The idea is that they will go out and tell the world about the Lord's righteousness to a people being brought forth, to a people who are not yet born, people who are in the process of being brought forth. There's people out there not yet been born, and we've got to go and tell them that he did it. Um, it's interesting. I've, I've long wondered whether this is supposed... In this, we're supposed to see an echo of something else that Jesus said from the cross. Remember, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also said, It is finished. It's been done. And I strongly suspect that that's another... Uh, element of this psalm which is you know, add that to the list of 24 I think 
allusions and quotations. That's 25, I think. It's done. The crucifixion of Christ puts an end to and sets in motion an unstoppable train towards the accomplishment of all God's purposes. It's done. The king has been crowned, suffering king. The king has been raised. He surely will be. He has now been. It's been done. And so the promise of verse 27 to 31 is absolutely unstoppable. So, justly, one of the most well-known, most loved psalms, full of riches that we've not explored today, gritty, um, one to keep by you for the dark days, and one to encourage you as we look to a future that is becoming more and more as the Lord intended this world always to be, honouring him, because he's done it. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you that it's been done. We've seen a man who's become like water poured out, encompassed by dogs, pierced, despised and afflicted. And now that conquest is complete. We stand in his shadow linking arms with him, privileged to be among those tribes of the nations who worship before you. Because to you is the kingdom and you're ruling among the nations. We pray, Father, that our lives will be testimonies to the truth of this psalm. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.